You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you then, as is our custom, uh, to join me in Matthew chapter 23. Now, if you don't have a smartphone or a Bible or access to some Bible, then do me a favor. You'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please make that our gift, our gift to you. If you know someone who doesn't own a Bible, make that our gift to them. We, you can't steal it. We're giving them away. Uh, and so as you, as you do that, make your, make your way through the table of contents. Don't be afraid of them. If this is the first time you've opened a Bible or the thousandth time, we believe there's treasure uh, available for both of us. And so if you'll join me in Matthew chapter 23, uh, we, that Matthew is the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament. That word gospel literally just means good news. And so Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, and John, are telling the good news, the eyewitness account of the teaching, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we find ourselves in the last third, let's call it, of the gospel of Matthew. Now up to this point, the first 20 or so chapters, Matthew has covered the first 33 years of Jesus' life. And like the other gospels, you could describe them as simply a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And that's because this latter third covers one single week of Jesus' life. And for the latter third, starting about in chapter 20 and 21, Jesus has entered back into Jerusalem, where instead of being welcomed and received happily by everyone, as the Gospel of John tells us, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so what has happened up to this point, as he's come into Jerusalem, we've seen in the last few chapters, that a series of conflicts ensues. People that are out to trap him, namely characters that we'll see as the central, uh, the central target for the discourse this morning, are the Pharisees, the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. People that have been pretty much opposed to what Jesus was doing from the very beginning of his public ministry. And Jesus, in this latter third, in this, or the, the, the last third of this particular book, we find zooming in on the interactions that he has. The second thing you'll see as we read the whole of chapter 23 is, as we've discussed, there are five different uh, what are called major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. That is, Matthew tells us about five major sermons or public, uh, public discourses. For example, the first is the most famous, the most memorable, the most, the most studied text in all of history. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 uh, has these powerful and, and beautiful truths, including some of the most popular of those truths inside this sermon are what, known as the, are what are no, is known as the Beatitudes, literally blessings, uh, benedictions, words of, of positive outcome. So you, you might remember this or you might have heard it before in this first most famous sermon. Jesus opens his public ministry in this discourse by predicting a series of positive outcomes, right? Blessed or literally happy, it will go well for you if you, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You get the idea, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It, quite literally a prediction of, hey, here are positive good outcomes that will follow if this is how you categorize yourself. And what we find here in chapter 23 is the fifth and final of the public discourses. And as he began his public ministry with a series of blessings, he concludes his public ministry, as we'll see here, with a series of curses and woes. Now, uh, 
That being said, uh, I, I, I've loved, I love hearing Joe and Janet encourage us about some of the things coming up. I, I want you to know for 2024, I, I, I believe Jesus is going to be enough for us. Jesus is going to be enough for you and for me and for our church in 2024. Um, and, I, and I would love to, like probably any other, any other gathering of a Christian uh, church, I would love to give you like, hey, here's the really great things that are going to happen to us in 2024. Uh, unfortunately, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. And so I might title today's sermon, Seven Curses for You in 2024. Uh, I'm not kidding. And, and so there's a, a seven warnings that we find here. And so uh, I, I guess as we begin to, to see Jesus' major, uh, final major discourse, we're going to read all of chapter 23, and, and I'll, I'll have a couple things for you. Number one, my goal regularly on a Sunday is to stretch your attention span for the reading and also for the teaching of God's Word. Now, I apologize. I don't ever want to abuse your attention span. But I, I know that most of your attention span was, was blocked off in little pieces this, this, uh, this week that was like this, right? Scrolling very briefly through, you know, one fat, fantastical thing to another. And so I know what we're doing is countercultural, and yet I want to I regularly stretch your attention span to hear from God. Not just this morning, but even throughout this week. And so what comes with that then is that we begin to let God speak into our own lives. As we go through books of the Bible, uh, you'll see the topics don't necessarily align with the calendar. And so while this is a particularly longer course of, uh, or chunk of text, I know that. Some of you are going to space out in the middle of it. That's okay. Uh, and so as you do that, that's okay. Uh, it's, it's a lot to take in. As you kind of space out, pay close attention to the thing that draws your attention back into this room. Now, again, I hope you go someplace nice. I hope it's green and has like palm trees, right? Enjoy it. But pay attention to the thing that, that kind of brings you back into the room. We believe that that's probably the Holy Spirit beginning to speak to you. So, you feel pretty good? Let's fix that. <laughs> beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by that oath. 
you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of deads, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, one of my favorite actors. Uh, now, every single generation probably has at their coming of age some sort of musician, actor, right, public artist that, that for whatever reason captivates you, speaks to you, grabs your attention. For me, in the 90s, it was Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. I, and, and, and the way that he so masterfully uh, I, I, I'm going to use the word, I'm I just repeat exp, uh, like, you know, kind of these exponentially big words over and over again as a little help you. Uh, 
he so masterfully uh, engaged in the art of slapstick comedy, which seems hokey and silly, but he committed to it to such a level that it was amazing. And you thought, oh, man, how is he doing this, right? And, uh, and so even one of, the, one, of the, one of the greatest travesties is that, uh, as, as far as I'm aware, Jim Carrey was never nominated for an Academy Award. Seriously? Go watch Truman. That'll change your life. Uh, the Truman Show, it's amazing. And so Jim Carrey, for me, was an amazing example of kind of the stretch between, let's say, a person and then their acting. That is the, the difference between the actual person and the character that they're playing. Because after all, that's what an actor is. An actor is a person who is taking on a story that is not their own. By taking on a persona or a role or character that's not their own in order to tell a tale that ultimately is not their own. This is the power of, of what an actor can do. Jim Carrey also has been attributed with many powerful, wise quotes in his, long, uh, in his long career of taking on some very interesting roles, let's say. And so one of the ways he described uh, his development as an actor and his ability to, to do pretty amazing things, or at least commit to some pretty outlandish and outrageous things, he described this in one interview. I was always two people when I was growing up. I was a kid, I was the kid who made my family laugh by pretending to fall down a flight of stairs, but then I'd retreat to my bedroom. An amazing actor, that as he explains it, was a part of growing up being two different people. Now why do I mention that? This word hypocrite, as we saw this in previous chapters, shows up here more in the Gospel of Matthew than any other Gospel. And every single time it's mentioned, it's coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. And this word shows up more in this one chapter than it shows up anywhere else in the whole of the Bible. And that word hypocrite quite literally means actor. Actor. That's what that word means. That it's as if Jesus is saying, woe to you, you actors, playing a role, taking on a story that's not yours, putting on a persona that's not yours, to tell a tale that's not ultimately yours. Now, what's profound about Jim Carrey, and uh, I guess he, you know, is on hiatus or is retired, uh, according, you know, to his last public address in the last couple of years. You don't care. It's fine. Just assume, you know, whatever. I find him to be a, a pretty impressive actor. When I think about other actors, right, you, you think of like other actors that don't immerse themselves in the role. They're just, this, especially action films, it's just like the same person over and over again, right? Uh, I mean, like, I think of like, especially, again, 90s, think of like Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal. Uh, it's the same guy, same role, same one. Uh, over and over and over again, same thing. Uh, and and you, if you watch it enough, you kind of get the same, you're like, oh, this is who this person is. And so anytime you see an actor who takes on such a broad role that it, 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 you can see the stretch, it, it's pretty impressive. And so in 1999, Jim Carrey took on a role playing the late great comedian Andy Kaufman. Now again, Andy Kaufman, I could say more about, but I don't know much about it. That was, that was before my era. That wasn't my coming of age. But Andy Kaufman apparently was also a very gifted, kind of uh, gifted at taking on multiple roles. And to immerse himself in the role, Jim Carrey began to act as though he was Andy Kaufman and be Andy Kaufman, not just on camera, but the whole of his experience. And it kind of freaked most of the, most of the cast and crew out. And there's even, there's even a, there is now a, a, a documentary with some of the footage from 
when that was filmed. Because after all, he was taking on a role of Andy Kaufman, who also, in his comedy, took on multiple roles. I mean, just think about the brain bending that took place in you're trying to take on a persona who has multiple personas. I mean, that's, that, that would wear you out. That, and so he committed to the role so much so that he was not the same. In fact, if you'll see, some of the films that were made after that, are, it, they're no longer the same. It changed. It changed Jim Carrey, as he would say, taking on that kind of a role. And it fueled what he, he is regularly professes, his own experience of ADHD and depression. And when he describes his experience of depression, this is how he describes it. Depression is caused by your body and your psyche becoming exhausted with who you were trying to portray in the world. Now, of course, this isn't a clinical definition, but read that again. A person who was quite gifted, even as he said from childhood, of being two different people. He said his deepest despair came from when his body and his psyche were exhausted by trying to portray who he really was to the world. Do you know that kind of exhaustion? Have you felt that kind of exhaustion that comes from putting on a show, putting on an act, trying to convince people you are better than you really are? Do you know how that feels? Jesus offers a series of curses, a woe, as it were. Now, that's not a word that we use regularly, so as we kind of like skim through these list of woes, I'll have to translate some of these things into kind of modern language, and one of those is, like I said, the word hypocrite. That literally means actor, a fake, a performer, but he speaks to them as in, in words of woe, that this, was, this would have been a formulaic kind of way, and you see in the Old Testament of of, of, in essence, predicting that misery awaits you. Woe to you. Quite literally, like, what great misery awaits you? What sorrow, what anguish, what calamity or catastrophe or disaster? What gloom or what hardship? What misery, what affliction, agony, or even what curses await you who fill in the blank? And it's as if he says, what calamity awaits you, you fake, you actor? taking on a role that's not your own, a character and a persona that's not your own, to tell a story that's not your own. You're duplicitous. You're superficial. You're on the surface one way, when in reality, you are different. And so, he's, so to summarize, he says, sorrow awaits you. Sorrow, awful things are in your future. For speaking, in a way that you're not actually living, for imposing expectations onto others that you yourself did not even live up to, for living ultimately for appearance and the approval of others, for exalting people to a place above that of God himself, and for hindering, as a result, others from coming to know God, and for pretending as though you're better than you are and looking down in self-righteousness on others. Because after all, you can play the role and and like Jim Carrey, for many people on the cast and crew, you might be able to convince some people to play along. And Jesus says there are curses and woes. There, are, there is sorrow and hardship for the people who have played this role and for the people who have started to play along. So, let me begin to kind of skim through this as we think about 
how this, let's say, translates to, I think, a good word of warning for you and I. Now he's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. He's speaking, as you see in verse 2, to scribes and Pharisees that sit on Moses' seat. So as we've seen before, the Pharisees were against Jesus. If you, if you think of like the kind of the, the modern, think of the Pharisees as a, as a, as a for them, a contemporary far-right movement. Who the, that their, their whole goal was that the good life would come about by going back to the law. And by it, it even to the point where they would add parts of the law. They would add to their law. You saw one of them. Like they, uh, not only were they just tithing and doing what was right, they were tithing mint and cumin. Like they, they, were, they were following not just the law to give to God, but they were like, we give so much, we give out of our spice cabinet, right? And, and as if to like impose that kind of expectation on someone else. Whereas like the Sadducees, were think of, think of like the, they were the contemporary far left, where like the good life was by ultimately being free from the restraints of God's expectations, and so they minimized or reduced and even took parts out of God's law. They only trusted the kind of non-supernatural parts of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he has said to both of them words of warning and opposition. And amongst those Pharisees were like an elite specialized group known as the scribes. Think of them as the people who were the translators. These were the interpreters. These were the people who would help apply God's righteous expectation to their lives. And so he says they have sat themselves literally onto Moses' seat. They, they believe they're speaking for Moses. And so when they do, and as well as they do, do and observe whatever they tell you. After all, they're expounding upon God's righteous character revealed through his law. But don't do the works that they do. Follow what they tell you, but do not follow their example. And then he gives a list of the ways that they are hypocritical. They're actors. They're putting on a show. They preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens for others that they don't even do themselves. They do everything they do ultimately superficially for the expectations and the applause of crowds. It's even to the point where they, they regularly jump into positions of honor, taking on titles to the extent that it seems to have replaced what they would see of God. I mean, think of this here. It's like, that, that might take a little bit of, of, of translating. He says, don't call anyone rabbi or father or, or teacher. Now, now, the rest of the New Testament outlines the new, uh, how the New Testament church will actually have these positions. But it's as if to say, if you desire the office and the title more than you desire the substance, you're fake. If you desire the honor and the accolade more than you desire the service, then what does he say? Then ultimately, you think you're great, you will be humbled. The people who desire the task and the service are the ones who will receive the honor. So this isn't to say, like, you know, don't go home and be like, I'm not going to call my father father anymore. Absolutely not. There, there are teachers, rabbis, fathers, but, but again, think of what they were doing. They were, it's as if they were desiring or they had taken up a spot, a status that as Jesus is rebuking these Pharisees of his day, they have they had taken up an, a, a status that belonged to God alone. They had seen themselves and apparently had been functioning in such a way that, that they, were, they were in a status of being a father, but in a way that somehow replaced or tried to take the place of God as father. They were teaching and instructing, which is good, right? We even see uh, right, James's letter to the New Testament churches and uh, in, in his epistle later that if you desire to be a, a teacher, you're desiring a noble thing, a difficult thing. But evidently the way that they had adopted the role of instructor, it says that he, he corrects them. Like if you're going to be called instructor, 
in a way that undermines your one instructor, the Christ, then you've taken the position that Christ alone deserves. And woe, that is sorrow, calamity, is in your future. Beginning in verse 13 is a series, as you heard a litany, probably, probably like, is, this, is he still going? Is, he, is this still happening? And a list of woes. There are seven there, depending how you kind of count seven plus one, but there are seven times this word woe shows up. And the idea is that there's a, a, a calamity that's on the way for these people who have been acting in a role, pretending they are something that they are not occupying a place that belongs to God alone. Ultimately, that distracted, if not even deterred people from knowing who God who really was. But at the very least, it made them fake. And Jesus gives them a warning. And I invite you to begin to experience that same warning. This is the hypocrisy that he describes. That they are focused on appearances, titles, external things, to the detriment of the substance of a thing. So if I were to kind of concoct my own little, based on some of my own, I don't know, I'm stealing from a few different, different people as they would describe it. Here, here's how I would describe hypocrisy in this chapter. Hypocrisy is to externalize the truth. To externalize rather than internalize it. To take something and boil it down into something that can be measured and controlled strictly by external means. Things that you can touch, feel, and move yourself. As opposed to the substance you heard in, in the kind of the, the second and third from the last, you described them as, as people who evidently are, are like a, a, a filthy glass or plate or cup that's, that's clean on the outside. Or in this case, he also said something even more powerful, like a whitewashed tomb. It may be painted and look pretty, or it might have been, we think, most scholars think that probably as these, these travelers were coming in to Jerusalem, um, they would have marked some of the graves with lime uh, so that they would know that they can avoid these particular tombs so that they wouldn't be ceremonially unclean and not be able to take part in the sacrifices that they came to Jerusalem to partake in in the beginning. And so it's as if to say, it may look bright and pretty on the outside, but on the inside it's full of decay. It's full of awful things. And sorrow, he says, awaits you. Calamity, despair awaits you because you've externalized, you've externalized something to the detriment of its substance. So think of hypocrisy as any time that we have found a way to measure or control by external means something that is mysterious, internal, and existential. Now, this is especially important for us. Uh, so, so if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus, I'm really grateful you're here. I, I love that you get to hear Jesus on his merits. Like, this is Jesus when he's fired up. Like, most people might, yeah, I'm afraid that we might even misrepresent Jesus, though he doesn't speak these things. And we might even wonder, like, why did they crucify him? Like, why, why did they turn on him? And, and, and Matthew's gospel is very clear. This is why. You don't, you don't get hung on the cross by telling people things that they want to hear. And so I'm grateful that you're here to listen in on Jesus' warning, and I hope that you would join us in heeding and humbling ourselves before a real warning. Calamity ensues those who do not heed this kind of warning. God, God is righteous and good. God cannot allow sin to be prevalent. God cannot take the same space as that which is impure. God is perfect. He can't simply overlook that which is broken and unjust in the world. But for those of us, it seems the warning, and this is why I think Matthew includes this, for the first century context that he's telling this gospel to, we see this warning because 
as we come nearer and nearer to God, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we've been drawn to God, and as that happens, we have a new self, a new heart. So the law of God, as, as Jeremiah prophet, uh, prophesied, is written on our hearts by the power of God's Spirit. We, we actually start to want to do the things for good and righteous reasons that we might have otherwise wanted to do for selfish reasons or for superficial reasons, as we see here. But as we get closer and nearer to God, while we would have begun by simply professing in repentance, God, I'm, I'm helpless and I'm hopeless without you. I need you to make me new. I need you to make me clean. We, more than any other, are tempted, and this is why Matthew includes this, to begin to externalize, to begin to think that now, even though we've come to God Hoping in Him alone, we kind of start to hope in ourselves. I've got this now. I can start to behave properly. I can start to clean myself up. Now, this is, this is a paradox. After all, God starts to change us. Uh, God makes us new. Um, there, there's, there's, a, there's a few things I would speak to here, especially if maybe you're not a Christian or you're kind of worried, you kind of worried, you might be worried, wondering about what this whole Christianity thing is all about. Um, one is uh, you might be turned off by the hypocrisy of, of people who call themselves Christian, right? Did you hear one of the warnings he said? Like, people are actually being shut out of coming to God and his kingdom because of the way you're acting. And think of it this way. What if I asked you, like, hey, do any of you know anyone who's currently hung up on and has, has like, issues and doesn't want to be a Christian strictly because of what they've seen other Christians do? Every single one of you would raise your hand. Uh, some seven years ago, uh, Pew Research, uh, this is just amongst millennials, uh, Pew Research began to, to interview millennials and surveyed that, that more than two-thirds of millennials surveyed said the reason is millennials who are not Christian or not a part of a local church, and more than two-thirds said uh, the reason for not being a part of a local church is because of the hypocrisy of Christians. So this, this warning is just as helpful and just as, just as dire for us now. And so I would just speak to, to you in this room. If that's you, I'm, I'm, I might be one of the first people you know that doesn't dismiss that. I also have some bullet wounds from people who call themselves Christians. I, try, I think I'm healed, but sometimes you probably see them. You're like, oh, well, okay, he's got a chip on his shoulder, right? And, and so I'll t I, I, that is absolutely true. This is, this is what I love about the Bible. It's completely honest about our experience. If, if you or someone you know is like, I mean, I think I would be open to this Christian or this Christian thing, but Christians bother me, then join the club. We all have that. But there's, there's two things I want to say to you. One is you need to be aware of, at least you're, if you're a Christian in the room, the people right now that are probably hung up on Jesus because of you. Because after all, remember, as I shared with you in, in our journey through Matthew, anytime you see the Pharisees and they're described, beware, it's a trap. It's a trap. The Pharisees thought they were better than others because they believed in their own righteousness. And so when you hear the stories of Pharisees, you can very quickly slip into the trap and go like, oh my gosh, what an idiot, right? Like, like they, would, they would scoop out a gnat in their soup, but they would eat a camel in their soup. What a stupid, right? You're like, what an idiot. And then, and then that's it. Matthew's like, gotcha, right? You're in the trap. Because the minute you would look at a Pharisee and go like, I can't believe they would do that, you're being a Pharisee. You're thinking that you're better than that person. And so even in this, we know that this is the nature of humanity, that, that people are going to see people who are Christians, see their flaws, and be turned off by it. That's a warning Jesus gives. But here's the, the invitation I'll offer you as well. 
So you think the church is full of hypocrites? You're wrong. It's not full. There's room for more. The problem here isn't that they were doing things that were awful. The problem was that they were excusing it. And they were acting as though it did not exist. The problem wasn't that they did things that were awful and despicable. That's just what it means to be human. The problem was that they found a way to justify it, explain it, or minimize it, kind of lower what God's expectation was for them. And so notice something we see really, really potent. As he begins to explain the hypocrisy, he calls them, and there's a word shows up multiple times, he calls them blind. And he uses a pretty funky kind of oxymoron, right? You blind guides. You'd be like, what? Like a guide who can't see? Like that doesn't, that doesn't work. Exactly. That's the point. That's the, that's the absurdity of this. But, but notice what we find in this, that the powerful effect of sin is that it makes you keenly aware of the sin of others and blind to your own. It wasn't just that these people had been acting inappropriately, that they had put themselves in a situation that was a negative influence on others. It was that they had become completely blind to it. And I want you to know, that's the paradoxical and difficult nature of sin. Sin, by nature, in its effect, makes you keenly, highly sensitive to the sin of others. And it makes you blind to your own. Now, if you want to nerd out in the room, uh, in, from the 14th to the 16th century, the theological term for this is what we call the noetic effects of sin, the noetic effects of the fall, N-O-E-T-I-C. You don't have to remember that word, it doesn't matter. But the idea is that it, it affects, sin is so pervasive and has corrupted all things that it even affects our knowledge, our ability to know things. So sin, rebelling against God's good design, not only is visible in the world and how, how its effects can be seen and visible in ourselves and our broken relationships and broken interactions and just broken everything, broken weather, broken world, broken nation states, you get the idea? But it also even breaks our very ability to know and understand what's real and true. Sin deceives us. And the way it deceives us, and this is tricky, this is, man, this is sinister, isn't it? It makes you think you see sin clearly because you see it in others. And that, in that moment, feels like a happy distraction. Because after all, right now, if, if, I could, right, if I could just collectively demonize some group of people for their sin, in that moment where we're like, yeah, that's awful, in that moment, what are we not looking at? Our own. And it's a convenient and helpful distraction. But that's the sinister nature of sin. It's the paradox of blindness. Right? It's, 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 it's like the paradox of as you're driving, you have a blind spot. Even that's a contradiction, right? Because if it's a blind spot, then by definition, you, you don't know about it. Even to call it a blind spot is to imply something about it that's probably not true. Namely, you don't even know what it is. You, how do you know? You, you have no idea. You're blind to it. You get the idea? And now you begin to see the helplessness and the hopelessness of being under and a part of the systems of and the fruit of sin that blinds us to it. Now, I've described to you the warning of Jesus. Starting in verse 37, you'll see the invitation of Jesus. But before we do that, if I could even just offer some practical insight, I think, as, as, we, as we reflect on how uh, this warning, the, the longest warning of its type, against hypocrisy, against being an actor and a fake, before we get to Jesus' invitation, there might be some, I think, helpful things here. One, 
Apply truth to your deepest, innermost being. As best as possible, regularly reflect upon and think about what is true and real and connect it to your innermost being. I'll use different words because generationally we talk about this differently. Apply truth not only to externals, but to the heart, as the Bible would call it, the identity or the purpose. I say multi-generational because a couple of things are, are helpful here. First, the younger you are in the room, the more you have a distaste and dissatisfaction for hypocrisy, right? I believe, it, just culturally speaking, the younger you are in the room, Gen Z, uh, millennial, or even kind of like boomer on down, we've been taught about the distastefulness and awfulness of hypocrisy. Uh, we have lots of stories, especially if, if you think culturally of religious people and how they have hurt us or scorned us. Uh, and so this is, the result is, is, is really profound, is that most of you in the room, the younger you are, you have a hypersensitive awareness of inauthenticity. You are hypersensitive if someone is like deceiving you or has an agenda. And this is profound because this is what's true. Right now, if that's you and you kind of have a hypersensitive awareness of inauthenticity, you, would, you wouldn't be very bothered if I said something right now that was untrue, as you would be bothered if I said something that was fake. Like right now, if I said something that was just, just false, right, just like it's completely false, right, it just, it's completely untrue, you'd be, well, it's true for him, you know, he, he clearly believes it. But if I said something to you and it seemed like I was being fake about it and it didn't seem like, I don't think he really believes that, that would turn you off more than if I said something that was untrue. Or at the very least, you would have a more sensitive radar for that than you would for what's true or untrue. Now, I use the language here. I try to use different ways of thinking that because the younger you are in the room, the, the last century, you'll, you'll use language like identity, who you really are, your truest or authentic self, you might even hear someone say. The older you are in the room, you might think about like your deepest innermost being, not in terms of identity, but in terms of meaning or your purpose. Like, well, why you're on the earth. These are just how we conceive of the good life and why we exist. And so, friend, hear the warning of Jesus. Whatever we encounter about the character of God and who Jesus is, apply it to that. Begin to allow Jesus to warn your deepest self, your deepest meaning, your deepest purpose. The real you the inside you, as it were, the inside the cup, inside the tombstone you, inside your deepest fears, your deepest hopes, your deepest dreams. Here's another practical, I think, application. Quote Jesus more than you quote anyone else. These fake actors evidently had begun to take on the role of, of like replacing or speaking for God. And so, friend, he, hear the warning of Jesus, right? Again, let there be teachers, let there be fathers, spiritual fathers, or they, that's what the Apostle Paul calls himself towards Timothy, right? All right, let those things happen, but don't let them ever replace what we hear from Jesus. And so, I, mean, I don't know, I want to serve you. I want to help you. I, I want you to know, anytime I get to stand up here and talk to you, I don't know the answers to your questions, I don't have all the solutions to your problems, but I know the guy who does. And so my goal every week is, hold, just help, hey, I want to introduce you to him. I want you to consider him. 
I want you to consider his teaching, his life, his death, and his non-death, his resurrection. I want you to think about these things. And so along the line, I might say something helpful, right, that I stole from someone else, and you might, God help us, quote me. Sometime this week, you might, well, he said this, right? That scares me because most people quote me on the stuff I wish they hadn't heard. Like, did you hear him? Like, oh, that's not, that's not what I know. Don't, that's not what I wanted you to hear. God help, God help us, you might quote me. Or someone else. But let's be a people that quote Jesus more than we quote anything or anyone else. Let's be a people that listen to Jesus more than we listen to anyone else. Let me apply this as deeply as I can. Let's quote Jesus more than you quote Fox News or MSNBC or whatever your flavor is. I don't, good, good for you, right? Or your Neapolitan news intake. Like, let's quote, when we, again, when we think about how we're intaking information, let's quote Jesus more when we quote those. Let's quote Jesus more than our, I don't know, like our favorite political leader right now. Let's quote Jesus more than we quote anyone else. Let's begin to listen to him. Because look, the, the acting, the faking that they were doing was that they had occupied a place where they saw that their words and their thoughts were more important than Jesus. Let's quote Jesus. Let's listen to him more than we listen to anyone else. Let's let him inform us more than anyone else. One of the things I think you also see is the fruit when God begins to change this and heal this kind of duplicity that exists in your life and mine, notice that the fruit is worship. Look at Psalm 33. Psalm 32 says the same thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a prayer of confession. Blessed is the one who transgression is forgiven. And then he is now, it says he will begin to worship. He will begin to sacrifice. Um, and, and ultimately because he says he will rejoice. Righteous one, shout for joy. Because why? You are upright in heart. So look how Psalm 33 puts it. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. That, that word righteous, the word upright, that's the, that's the idea that God is beginning to create equilibrium between your real self, your internal being, and your external actions. He's actually starting to connect the two. And there's lots of ways that that happens. One is that you actually start to see your inside normal real self more truly. After all, that's what sin and its effects does. It separates these two things. Every single one of us has these two things, and there's a gap between the two, uh, and you trust the people who are aware of the gap, and it's small. You don't trust the people who the gap is big. So on that gap, on this side of the gap, is your self-image. Let's call it your self-esteem. How you see yourself. This is what I'm like. Like, I'm just, I, I know I'm like this. I'm like this. And then on the other end of that gap, there's how people actually experience you. And if that gap is wide, well, one, again, that's just the effects of sin. We all have that gap. But the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit working in biblical community begins to close that gap. Because after all, it, I mean, it's happening right now. Um, if, if you, uh, this happens every week. If on this end of the gap, I'm like, I'm saying something interesting. I'm saying something you should listen to. But there's a huge gap, and it's actually, everyone who's like, I don't care. I, nope, I don't actually experience it. Then you'll lose trust. You won't trust those people. Why? Because they're hypocrites. They, the way that they see themselves and understand themselves and the way that anyone experiences them shows the effects of sin. And so that gap, by the power of God's Spirit, makes us righteous. It makes us more whole. It brings peace and comfort. It puts us back together. It takes our duplicity and it begins to unify. It makes us who God has redeemed, created and redeemed us to be. And what's the fruit of that? praise. Praise. 
not self-righteous, like, oh, yeah, look at me. Look at me, you know, look, look, look at how I, right? You get the idea, like, look how I express my authentic self. That's not, that's, not, that's pride. Our response to being made whole here is, it says we've been made righteous. What are we going to do? We're going to shout to joy. We're going to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because as we're being made upright and being made righteous, the response is praise. And so this may seem absurd, but every single week we get together and what do we do? We, we praise, we sing. We, what a weird thing to do. It's not even a soccer game and we're out here singing, right? We're singing and it's, culturally speaking, that's, that's weird, it's out of place, but that's because we know that we're being made right. I think the warning I would offer is the way to not respond, the way to respond unhelpfully to Jesus' warning is to simply as you see the disconnect and feel the disconnect of how you see yourself and understand yourself and how you really are, when you see that, to either dismiss it or just run with it. I want you to know this, this, this passage might be more powerfully helpful for us right now than it ever has been. We are in the middle of a pretty messy conversation as a, as a culture, as a society, about the nature of identity who we are on the inside and how we behave or who we are on the outside. We're, we're trying to figure that out. And, we're have, and it's, it's messy. It's, it's not going well, right? Conversations over gender, gender roles, over sexuality, or over, like, think of, uh, think of identity, like, like uh, ethnic identity, racial identity. Like, the, we're, we're struggling to figure this out. Identity politically, you're all just, right? We are not doing this well. And I want to commend to you the warnings Jesus has here are crushing at first. But that means that as we are kind of, as we saw in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as we are crushed on the gracious wall of God's righteous expectation, it's gracious because He begins to put us back together. And so Christians, more than any others, should sympathize with any of us around who are, who are confused about who I really, who I really are. Or like somebody's like, I'm trying to find myself, or like I'm expressing myself, right? And you're confused about it. Christians above all should be like, yeah, that's a mess, isn't it? That's confusing. Yeah, calamity ensues whenever there's a disconnect. And yet, as we're smashed upon the gracious warning, the pieces fall into Jesus' invitation. What do you do? with the inconsistency that we feel between who we think we are, wish we are, and who in our external reality. Look at the invitation that begins in verse 37. We go to the open arms of Jesus. Because after all, if, if, if in any moment in the last little bit, you've kind of come across like, that's hard. Like, I don't like that. That's me. Jesus is rough, right? And, 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 you're, meant, and you're kind of like, oh, that's, that's, that there's tension there, right? You're like, but the crowds of people are like, I think we should crucify him. We should kill that guy. He should talk, stop talking. Well, you're in good company. That's the, that's the natural human response. The supernatural response is to see something powerful here. Jesus brings our eyes into these things, not to crush us, not to shame us, and not to condemn us. But did you hear? <laughs> like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Are you crushed by the weight of your own hypocrisy, your own inability to be all that you wish you could be? Right, just think of it this way. Can you think of a more unintimidating image than a hen laying and hatching eggs? Do <laughs> you know anyone who right now is scared of or has nightmares about a hen? Like, oh, I can't, there's this danger, right? See the beauty of God's grace here. 
as he gives us a warning, as he says, look, calamity will follow from these things. He's warning you not to shame you or condemn you. He's warning you. He's like, look, I, and he says to these people who evidently are, are going to betray it and, and crucify him, he says, I wish I could have gathered you like children. I wish I could have brooded over you like a hen over her little chicks. Why would I trust Jesus with this, this inconsistency, the hypocrisy in the world, the hypocrisy in my own heart, because he comes to us not as a judge to condemn, but he only speaks words of judgment to invite us away from things that were never meant to satisfy us, to draw us under his wing. Why would I trust him? Look at the image. <laughs> Can you think of a less dangerous thing than a hen brooding over its chicks? Well, friend, why would we trust that we can confess what's true, our own experience of hypocrisy? Because this, can you think of a less threatening thing than a man stripped naked, beaten, spat upon, and hung dead? Can you see the great lengths that God in His warning comes to call us to Himself so that we would know that it's not judgment that we're running, running uh, we're not running from hypocrisy to judgment. No, we're running from hypocrisy to the safe place, to the one who was judged in our place. So I want to invite you to hear this invitation. I kind of, as best I could in my own words, and I want to invite you to put in your own words, I'm going to spend just a few minutes on this. Uh, each of those sections kind of is a warning. Calamity is coming to you. Each of those sections I've kind of summarized in this way, and, and I, I'm going to invite you in just a moment, we're going to take just a few minutes, I want you to think of, not all of you, if you just kind of I, if I identify with all of them, that's just going to be shame and condemnation, that's the enemy, that's not the spirit, but I want you to think, pray for one, let's say one or two of these things that jump out to you. Like the Pharisees, I do not practice what I preach. I exclude other people. I'm a bad example to others. I am dishonest about what I'm really like. I have overlooked or minimized injustice. I am greedy and self-indulgent. I've been focused on my appearance over substance. And then as you see at the end, he says, I'm going to send you prophets. Oh, I'll send you prophets. In fact, you're going to crucify the ones I send to you. And the one that crucifies him. I have rejected God's word to me. And take just a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you one or two of these things. Which one of those echoes a little more loudly in your own, in your own soul than the other ones? I know you wish it wasn't true. You wish it weren't. Just one or two. Now would you join me in praying? What I'm going to ask you to do is in your own words, in your own way, like I'm, you can fix my words, put your words uh, to it better. I want you to express that to God. So join me in praying. Let's pray together. In your own words, in your own way, would you express to God what's painfully true about you?
secret fear, secret dream, secret hope, secret sin, things you wish you could gloss over, (laughs) things you wish you could dress up. Confess it to the Father. Now hear this gracious invitation that is such good news. Jesus says to you and to me in our confession, come to me. Come to me not for judgment, not for condemnation, not for shame. Come to me and experience the comfort like a chick under a brooding hen. Come to me as one who is not afraid. Jesus, thank you that you have come to us as a broken Savior who has borne our sorrows. You have come to warn, and yet your warning is not to shame. Your warning is to invite, to gather us up under you. Thank you that you are unlike anyone. There's no one else who would look at the world and say, I want all the hypocrites, I want all the fakes, I want all the actors. I want all the liars and deceivers, and yet that is exactly what you've come to welcome. You've come in our inconsistency to welcome us and to brood over us, not in judgment, but in comfort in life. Might today be the day that we confess what's true and receive what's available. Thank you that you've come not as a, as a, as a Lord to, to master over us, but you have come as a servant to, in effect, master under us to lift us up. Might we receive the grace that comes from admitting what's true and knowing that it doesn't shock you or surprise you, but that there's grace and open arms waiting. Might today for everyone in this room be an experience of having been welcomed and and brooded over and, and embraced like children with a loving Father. We thank you that you offer this to us, Jesus. Help us to receive it by faith. Amen.